was the previous program was Max and Murphy heard Wednesdays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for the WBAI evening news coming up. Good evening. Blackout sweep Texas as snow heads for New York. A conservative right wing radio talk show host dies and reparations in the House of Representatives. We're going to discuss that as well. For the WBAI Evening News, I'm Paul DiRienzo for Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. Nearly three and a half million Americans were without power after back-to-back winter storms swept the nation. The deadly storm has caused at least 24 deaths. Utilities from Minnesota to Texas and Mississippi have implemented rolling blackouts as unprepared power grids were shut down by ice, snow, and reliance on carbon-based fuels. Texas Power Grid Manager, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ECOT, said electricity had been restored to 600,000 homes and businesses by Tuesday night, though three million homes and businesses remain without power as of midday Wednesday. Officials didn't know when power would be restored. Thousands of Texans are living without power with temperatures dipping into the 20s. Water is also not flowing as pipes have frozen and pumps shut down. There have been reports of deaths attributed to carbon monoxide from people sleeping in their cars and using generators indoors. Last night, the governor, conservative Republican Greg Abbott, in a turnaround, blamed the state's large wind and solar industry for the state's problems. Abbott was roundly criticized as experts pointed to Texas's over-reliance on natural gas for its energy. The executive director of the climate watchdog Environment Texas is Luke Metzger. He spoke with WBAI from Texas moments ago, and he says it's cold. 30 gigawatts of electricity uh, was not available when they were expecting it to amid record demand. And most of that generation was fossil fuel, gas, and some nuclear. Our governor was on the Sean Hannity show last night throwing the blame at wind and solar when the, the facts do not support that. The state officials have been clear that the the bulk of the shortage of electricity came from fossil fuels and, and not wind and solar, which mostly met expectations. As a result, we're still having millions of people without power. My family's been without power for three days now. And um, you know, we know do- at least a dozen uh, people or more have died, um, as well as many people being sent to the hospital for carbon monoxide poisoning from you know, exposure to fumes from you know, sitting in their car or running a generator in their house. So it's uh, definitely a, a huge toll for human life and a general mess. We know that the state could have taken a number of steps to help prevent or mitigate this. We had a similar winter storm about 10 years ago, and the conclusion was that the generators could have done more to winterize their operations. The state chose to just make that voluntary and just required the companies to report to the state what they were doing, not actually require them to to actually take the steps to prevent plants from freezing, the pipelines and wellheads from freezing. 
In addition, we know that we could have, for a long time, we could have been preparing by reducing energy demand through energy efficiency, investing in on-site solar and backup generation, and many other clean energy solutions, which would have helped tremendously right now. It's hard to get your head around. How is it that the oil capital had this problem? Yeah, it's a real black eye on the state's image as the world's energy leader. It largely comes down to our deregulated electric market that encourages the generators to really gamble um, in terms of reducing their costs as much as possible in order to maximize the gain. Clearly, there wasn't sufficient incentive for the companies to invest in winterization and prevention measures, measures that could have avoided this disaster. So basically, an electricity lottery that we're in in Texas and really game to help the, the big electric companies profit and at the expense of health and safety and certainly the environment as well. How is it that the governor could have said it was solar and wind? How much solar and wind is there in in the oil-rich lands of Texas. Texas is the national leader in wind power, and we are quickly rising the ranks in solar. Um, and But we certainly know that our state grid operator doesn't count on much wind and solar generating during the kind of peak winter demand period. They count on large, overwhelmingly, gas and fossil fuel and nuclear to, to meet our needs. And so, according to ERCOT, the wind and solar, for the most part, largely met expectations, in some cases overperforming, producing more power than was expected. But the governor is kind of tapping into some of the anti-renewable and conservative sentiment out there that are just looking to point the finger at renewables and the facts don't support that. The governor just two days ago announced that it was mostly gas and other fossil fuel plants were to blame, but then last night gets on Sean Hannity and says the complete opposite and throws renewables under the bus. Total nonsense. isn't supported by the facts. Do you think he got a call from uh, former President Trump? Oh, unfortunately, we know that most Americans, including you know healthy pluralities of uh, Republicans, support more wind and solar. There's still a strong base of Republican primary voters that are dismissive of renewables. And I suspect that in addition to feeding in the fossil fuel companies that fund his campaigns, he's also pandering to primary voters who are happy to throw kind of renewables, which they see as some kind of a liberal thing under the bus. It demonstrates that we have kind of a frailty to our electric grid across the country. And I'm hoping that federally we see action. I know President Biden, part of his climate plan and public works plan, you know, promised a big investment in infrastructure. And, you know, I think this underpins and demonstrates how important it is that we invest in the electric grid as well in a way that will help our planet not make it worse. Luke Metzger is the executive director of the Climate Watchdog, Environment, Texas. Meanwhile, New York and surrounding areas are next in line for the powerful winter storm sweeping the plain states, pardon me, sweeping from the plain states. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced his warning earlier today. Tomorrow morning, and the latest we have from the National Weather Service is between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, we'll see uh, some snow beginning. Looks like it'll go through the day Thursday into Friday, ending somewhere between 10 a.m. and noon on Friday. Now, right now, over that pretty long period of time, the total accumulation is not too bad. It's between six and seven inches. But I'm going to say what I've said many times, and I've learned from painful experience. These things change. 
So we're going to constantly update New Yorkers. Uh, six to seven inches over 24 hours or more, that's not so bad. However, that can change. It could become a lot more. It can become a lot quicker. The timing can change. So we're going to constantly update you. What I can say is expect tomorrow to be difficult. And the storm is the fifth winter storm to hit New York this month and second one this week. It's a two-part storm. On Thursday, the snow begins near 8 a.m. Steady snow is likely from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. From 2 p.m., the snow will mix with freezing rain and sleet. One to three inches of snow are expected by 8 p.m. when the icy mix tapers off to just scattered showers. For Friday... A light icy mix in the morning turns to steady snow by mid to later morning. The snow will end near sunset on Friday. Another one to three inches of snow are expected to fall. And Rush Limbaugh, the talk show host who ripped into liberals and laid waste to political correctness with a gleeful malice that made him one of the most powerful voices in politics, died today. He was 70. Limbaugh galvanized listeners for more than 30 years with his talent for sarcastic insult-laced commentary, often aimed against women, people of color, and progressives. He was recently awarded the Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest honor from former President Donald Trump. Typical of Limbaugh's racist commentary was this pronouncement claiming black Americans owed a thanks to white people for fighting in the Civil War. The white race has probably had fewer slaves and for a briefer period of time than any other in the history of the world. No other race has ever fought a war for the purpose of ending slavery, which we did. Nearly 600,000 people killed in the Civil War. It's preposterous that Caucasians are blamed for slavery when they've done more to end it than any other race. And the issue of over who owes who over America's racial divide was discussed today by the House Judiciary Committee subcommittee. It heard testimony over a bill titled H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. The idea for the bill comes from a time after the Civil War when formerly enslaved families were promised by union leadership 40 acres and a mule. The offer was never fulfilled, yet a reminder to the centuries-old promise that had remained in Congress for decades. The bill has been introduced in every legislative session since 1989. H.R. 40's lead sponsor is Representative Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas. The bill seeks to establish a commission to study and consider a national apology and proposal for reparations for the institution of slavery. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has publicly announced her support for reparations. The co-chair male of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America is Cam Howard. America would in fact be greater today if it had acted correctly at any time in its past. Even still, the opportunity for true greatness can begin with the rightful action of this 117th Congress. H.R. 40 purports to establish a commission to do a comprehensive investigation into the wide scope of harms committed and the range of injuries still being suffered by 48 million black people in America. The highest standard of reparations is needed to adequately address over 400 years of atrocities and compounded and concretized injuries that this community endures. No quick fix, no singular action, or tweak here or there in existing policy would do. America must engage in full reparations. Fast forward to November of last year. As the acts of January 6th proved, Blacks without overwhelming vote for the Democratic Party again help save America from white nationalist hatred and destruction. It is now time for this 117th Congress 
to be as justice rendering as the Reconstruction Congresses. Passing H.R. 40 on the way to full reparations is how. And that's Cam Howard. He's co-chair male of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Outside of Congress, many local and state governments and universities across the country have acknowledged their role in the slave trade and are exploring ways to address the issue. Among them, Evanston, Illinois, adopted in 2019 a resolution to create a reparations fund as part of the city budget to use tax revenue collected from the sale of recreational marijuana to support reparations in the city. The city is giving up to $25,000 towards home ownership for Evanston residents and their direct descendants who suffered housing discrimination between 1919 and 1969. And President Joe Biden has announced for some time he won't uh, he won't uh, add one one inch to the border wall. That was a big part of the appeal of his predecessor, Donald Trump. The wall stretched for 700 miles along the desert and mountainous border between the United States and Mexico. But journalist Todd Miller, who lives in southern Arizona, says Biden and Democratic candidates receive more money than Donald Trump and Republicans from leading border security corporations, despite their markedly different campaign promises. Trump even took office. There was nearly 700 miles of walls and border. And ironically, Joe Biden, when he was a senator, in 2006 voted for the Secure Fence Act, which built much of that wall before Trump even landed in the White House. But now he's going to put more of the focus on technology, surveillance towers, drone systems that are operating on the border, the motion sensors. There's nearly 12,000 implanted motion sensors underground. So if people are walking on the land, they trip a sensor, an alarm goes off in a command and control center in what is known as a virtual wall. Biden is saying he's going to put a lot of emphasis onto this virtual wall, which if you look at how the border apparatus is set up, it's meant to be part wall. There's now more than 700 miles of it, part surveillance technology, which reinforces the wall and part border patrol personnel. It's like a three part system while stopping the wall. At the same time, they're going to reinforce this apparatus with technology with complex surveillance technology, with cameras that can see seven miles away, with radar systems that can have a radius of 13 miles, that communities in the borderland actually don't like the fact that there's surveillance towers hovering over them. It causes the same sort of effect, which is a prevention through deterrence effect, which is the name of this strategy. The urban centers are blockaded, so people circumvent those areas. And the surveillance technology plays a part of it. If there's a surveillance tower up on a hill, well, if you're crossing the border, you'll go further out into more desolate and dangerous regions. If this is what Biden is going to do, if instead of building a wall, he's going to build more technology, well, then he's just reinforcing the same exact system that Trump was building with a wall. That's what he'll be doing. Are you saying he actually did build some wall? So the 700 miles of wall that I was referring to, much of that was built before Trump even took office. 650 miles of it was built during the from the Secure Fence Act of 2006. What Trump did was he claims to have built 400 miles. Much of that 400 miles of wall, you call it replacement, but the replacement was of a vehicle barrier. So a vehicle barrier is basically maybe five feet high, and it's designed to stop like a car or a truck from crossing the border. So he, he would replace that 
with a 30 foot high bollard style wall and bollard means bars much of what trump did was replace vehicle barriers with this 30 foot wall the criticism of it that i've heard is that oh it's just replacing it but in reality he's replacing something small with something much bigger he has actually quote unquote accomplished building i don't know how many miles he claims 400 there has been a significant amount of this sort of replacement and then that's what biden is going to stop they're going to rip it down or they're going to leave no it that's another huge thing that's it doesn't matter that trump's built these 400 miles of whatever whatever you want to call it replacement wall or wall what has been done is done there is no talk about tearing it down there's no talk about tearing down the walls from the 2006 uh, Secure Fence Act. There are still reports. There's a number of construction companies that keep building. None of that wall is going to come down. At least there's no proclamation made of that by the Biden administration. Are they really going to uh, one day cut off all undocumented travel over the border? No, never. It's, it's not designed even to do that. The prevention through deterrence strategy is designed to reroute people. And so that's exactly what's happening. It was always meant to reroute them, reroute them into dangerous areas. It's hard to get through. The deterrence was that people do die or people you can get seriously injured. Janet Napolitano, the former DHS secretary under Obama, she said that, you show me a 50-foot-high wall, I'll show you a 51-foot-high ladder. The border is the wrong question. The right question is why are there so many displaced small farmers in Mexico? And that is a report from Todd Miller, journalist who lives in southern Arizona. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. At the end of 2020, Congress passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act, a $1.4 trillion budget that included the largest public investment in broadband since the 2009 Recovery Act. Part of this $7 billion injection into broadband was the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, a $3.2 billion program to be managed by the Federal Communications Commission to subsidize broadband subscriptions. FCC spokesperson Eric Wu announced the program today. PEP benefit will provide a discount of up to $50 per month on broadband service and associated equipment provided to low-income households. On tribal lands, the discount increases to up to $75 per month. Uh, Participating providers will receive the reimbursement for providing discounts on service to eligible low-income households. The EBBP will also support a one-time discount of up to $100 off the price of a laptop, desktop computer or tablet purchased from the participating provider. A household may qualify for the EBBP benefit if at least one member of the household meets the qualifications for a lifeline, which are if the household income is at or below 135% of the federal poverty guidelines for a household of that size, at least one member of the household participates in Medicaid, SNAP, Supplemental Security Income, Federal Public Housing Assistance or Veterans and Survivors Pension Benefit, or for households on tribal lands, uh, participation in certain tribal benefit programs. If a member of a household has applied for and been approved to receive benefits from the Federal Free and Reduced Price Lunch Program or School Breakfast Program, uh, has experienced a substantial loss of income since February 29, 2020, has received a federal Pell Grant in the current award year, or meets the eligibility criteria for participating providers existing low income or COVID-19 program. 
And that's SEC spokesperson Eric Wu announcing the emergency broadband benefit program. And with vaccines for COVID-19 scarce, the Biden administration's COVID-19 task force met today to inform the public on where the nation stands in its attempts to vaccinate an entire country. Vaccine coordinator Jeff Zients laid out the government's plan to get the vaccine into arms. In addition, we're doubling the weekly vaccine supply to local pharmacies from 1 million to 2 million doses. And thanks to the president's leadership, we're on track to have enough vaccine supply for 300 million Americans by the end of July. We're mobilizing teams to get shots in arms. We signed an order to allow retired doctors and nurses to give shots. Today, we've deployed over 700 federal personnel as vaccinators. The federal government is funding 1,200 National Guard members who are serving as vaccinators. For the first time, we have activated over 1,000 members of the military to support community vaccination sites. And we've deployed an additional 1,000 federal personnel to support community vaccination sites in operational roles. We're creating more places where Americans can get vaccinated. We've expanded financial support to bolster community vaccination centers nationwide with over $3 billion in federal funding across 40 states, tribes, and territories. We're bringing vaccinations to places communities know and trust community centers, high school gyms, churches, and stadiums nationwide. We've also launched efforts to get vaccines to pharmacies and community health centers. Our seven-day average daily dose administered is now 1.7 million average daily shots per day, up from 1.1 million only four weeks ago. Our seven-day daily average of 1.7 million compares to an average of 892,000 the week before President Biden took office. That is almost double in just four weeks. And that's COVID-19 Task Force Vaccine Coordinator Jeff Seentz. And New York City will run out of vaccines either today or tomorrow. Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that today. Currently, there are fewer than 30,000 first doses on hand, the mayor added. The massive storms taking place across the country are causing a delay in vaccine shipments that the city was expecting Tuesday and Wednesday, impacting up to 35,000 appointments, which will not be scheduled now. Mayor de Blasio emphasized the need for direct federal allocation of vaccines, bypassing the state in order to move the city forward. The hospital admission rate per 100,000 people on a seven-day average for New York State was 4.62%. The number of reported cases in the city was 3,321, and the percentage of people testing positive was 7.04%, both on a seven-day average. But despite the lack of vaccines, Mayor Bill de Blasio touted a new website the city has put up to streamline the appointment process. We've constantly improved nyc.gov slash vax4nyc, vax4nyc. What you'll find is a simpler approach to scheduling now available in 10 languages. So this is a streamlined approach. We're going to be bringing all the different providers who are now working with the city. I can speak for the entities that are choosing to partner with the city of New York as we open new sites. Northwell Health, Hospital for Special Surgery, Capsule Pharmacy. These are some of the healthcare providers who are opening sites with the city of New York. They're agreeing to be part of this website to make things move more smoothly so there's a more unified approach.
Uh, meanwhile, the New York State's Education Department is revising guidance released yesterday, stopping schools from mandating COVID-19 testing for in-person learning. The guidance had stipulated schools cannot impose remote instruction on students whose parents, guardians don't consent to surveillance tests for COVID-19. City and union officials immediately pushed back on the state mandate, arguing the testing requirement has been an important component of keeping learning safe. The United Federation of Teachers said in a statement this afternoon, now is not the time for New York State to abandon what works. Mayor de Blasio echoed the sentiment. Before these horrible incidents, what we actually saw was crime in the subways had gone down markedly, even compared to a year ago, even compared to the same point uh, 2020, first six weeks 2020 versus first six weeks of 2021, 59% decrease in index crime. Um, we know when we put more police out there through a precision policing strategy, it works. We've seen it happen time and time again. It works. It's also important to talk about the overall situation in this city. When you look at January 2021 versus January 2020, before the pandemic, the NYPD statistics that came out on Friday make clear overall index crime January 2020 compared to January 2021 is down 21%. That's a major, major reduction in crime. And the area we're most concerned about overall lately, gun violence, gun arrests are up 61% compared to a year ago. So NYPD is out there aggressively, energetically addressing safety concerns. We're going to do the same thing we've done at every point since ComStat was developed in 1994. We're going to identify a problem, address it, and show people it can be turned around. That will happen as well in the subways. And that was actually the mayor talking about the uh, tactics that were demonstrated yesterday in the Union Square subway station, uh, what the police will be implementing in subway stations across the city after a uh, 21-year-old suspect was charged with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and attempted murder in a Manhattan court Monday for uh, attacking several in, uh, homeless people who were living on the subways, killing two Um the mayor said that the uh, the uh, charged person, um, his name is Rigoberto Lopez, has slipped through the cracks of the mental health system. The NYPD is putting 644 officers on both platforms and trains throughout the system in response. Uh, de Blasio conceded that more investment in services for homeless and mentally ill New Yorkers are needed. Uh, but he went on to so, say that the uh, that in fact the uh, city of New York has gotten hold of its crime problem and that uh, actually crime now, uh, as measured by police statistics, is lower than it's been for several years. And that'll be our last story. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, February 17th, 2021. The news was engineered with uh, Reggie Johnson, who was produced with Linda Perry um, from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.